But now we get to do what we get to do every Sunday morning, which is a real privilege. We get to open up God's Word together. And today, for the second time, we're opening up to the book of Ephesians, a new sermon series in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Last week, we looked at just the first two verses. Today, verses 3 through 14. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have extras underneath the chairs in the center aisle. And uh, you know what? If you don't want to nudge somebody to grab one of those Bibles and you still don't have a Bible, go ahead and just open up your phone's browser and, assert, and search Ephesians 1. We'll be reading from the ESV version in English. And with that, listen closely. Here we go. Let's together read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray simply that this next portion of our service, what is spoken and what is heard, would be to the praise of your glorious grace. That we would see the one in whom we have every promise from you confirmed. And that it would result in a praise-driven life that's oriented toward you because of what you 
have done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh boy. Oh man, oh man. There's something in this passage that we just read that you don't see, and there's a reason that I read it like I did. It's, it's actually not something that, that you don't see. It's something that you see in this passage that in the original language that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians in, which is the language of Greek, there are no periods in this one sentence. This is the second longest sentence in your Bible, second only to the genealogy that's found in Luke, which is just one ridiculous long sentence. But this one, man, oh man, this is a spontaneous outpouring of praise. This is Paul pulling off the restraints and just waxing worshipful toward God for his sovereign grace. Listen, we, we established last week that, that the book of Ephesians is about, what it's about is the fulfillment of, of God's grand historical purpose, his grand historical purpose to reconcile all things to himself in the church. You heard it last week. The church is what God is doing in the world today. But Paul has a concern. He has a concern for you. He carries a concern. And here's his concern that he carries for you as you understand that purpose. Here's his concern. His concern is that you would be impressed with the church itself. Paul is concerned that you might find something praiseworthy in the church. That, that you might find something that, that, that is, is worth marveling at amongst his redeemed people. As you look out on, on the body of Christ, that you would find something impressive in, in us. And so Paul writes, verses 3 through 14, to say, the church is marvelous because God is marvelous. That's what this is about. Everything that follows in the book of Ephesians is preempted by this passage where, where Paul is saying, before we say anything else, before we get going, let me show you how marvelous God is. Because if there's anything worth marveling at after that, it begins there. It begins there. Friend, God wants you to be affected by his glory today. Today and every day, to, to marvel at his greatness, to marvel at his grandeur, to marvel at his magnificence. Paul's saying, let's start this letter on the right foot. You should marvel, but marvel at God. Why? Well, Paul is so glad you asked because while this passage defies outline or structure, I'm going to try to divide it into to four points, four sections, four reasons to marvel supremely at God. And let me just put this disclaimer out, out at the front. This is not only a long sentence, but if this sentence were, were a theological suitcase, 
Paul stuffed it so full that you need two people to stand on it just to try to zip it up. There's so much here. We're not going to get to it all. Even verses 9 and 10, we're not even going to touch them really because we explained them briefly last week. But also, much of what's contained in here is expounded at length in the rest of Ephesians. So if there's something in here you go, boy, we didn't touch on that. Okay. Or you can just come talk to, to me or Jeff and we can, we can talk further about theology. But, but we want to hit the high points. We want to hit the main thrust of what Paul is saying. So four reasons to marvel supremely at God. First point. God chose us. Point number one. God chose us. He starts in verse 3 with the words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, here's where we're going to start this letter, giving glory to God. Why? Because he has blessed us. With what? With every spiritual blessing. What blessings has he blessed us with? Paul says, I've got a list, but let me start here in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Read it with me even as he chose us in him, that is, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. If you're a Christian, God chose you before the foundation of the world. He chose you before you existed. He chose you before your parents existed. He chose you before the world existed. He chose you before time itself. Author K. Scott Oliphant says of these verses, God allows us to eavesdrop on eternity. We're getting a theologically informed backstory to our salvation. This, This, friends, this is what is referred to as the doctrine of election. It's the doctrine that says, People don't choose God. God chooses people and did so before time began. This doctrine is taught all throughout the pages of Scripture in, in passages like John 6.44 where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or in John 15.16, which he says to his disciples, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Or this this fantastic passage in Acts chapter 13, verse 48, where Paul and Barnabas, they're they're preaching to Gentiles, and the Gentiles are marveling at what they're hearing. And, and And then Luke, the author, says, as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Not as many who believed were appointed to eternal life, no. As many who had already been appointed to eternal life, they believed. Or 2 Thessalonians 2.13, where Paul, the same author as Ephesians here, says, but we ought also to thank God for you because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. Now let's camp out here for just a little bit. As a church, we are reformed in our 
theology. And if you're not familiar with, with that terminology or, or that word, it's, it's simply a view of the doctrine of salvation that emphasizes God's sovereignty, which is, which is his right and ability to rule and exercise that rule over all creation. So, let me start over. It's a, a view of the doctrine of salvation that emphasizes God's sovereignty rather than human responsibility so that he gets all the glory. And that's the thrust of Reformed theology. It's an emphasis on the glory of God. But you won't often hear us spouting off our Reformedness with the typical words and phrases associated with that tradition. Words like election or predestination or limited atonement or total depravity and so on and so forth. You won't often hear us using those words and phrases because we are careful. Because we're careful with these. Because there are a lot of wrong-headed ideas about what Reformed theology is. And there are a lot of people who believe in Reformed theology who use those words and phrases pridefully and misrepresent these beautiful teachings. So we're careful not to just throw them around because they tend to come with a lot of baggage. People understand them oftentimes differently than the way that they're presented in Scripture. And so we're careful to ensure these concepts, when we mention them, are grounded in actual Scripture. And when they do appear in Scripture, just as when we teach anything from Scripture, our aim is, is for God to be magnified through them. That's important for you all to know that. Because on one hand, we believe that the Reformed view of salvation is magnificent. Because it paints God as eminently worthy of all praise and glory. So here, in this text, we have the doctrine of election in our faces. Three times you see in this text, either the word predestined or chose before the foundation of the earth. It's the doctrine of God's sovereign choice. But before we proceed any further, let me give you three cautions regarding election. And then I'll tell you the wonder of election. So we'll start with three cautions about election and then the, the, the wonder of election. The first caution with the doctrine of election would caution you to be comfortable with mystery. Be comfortable with mystery. One of the greatest arguments against election is the relationship or the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. There are some great books on the subject. And if you're looking for, for good books, two that we'd recommend to you are one, Chosen for Life by Sam Storms or Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. Two fantastic, easily understandable books. But suffice it to say that the greatest minds in Christian history have tried to find the perfect answer to the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Listen, nobody has found the perfect answer. And so, if the greatest minds in the history of the church have 
not been able to find the perfect answer, that should temper your expectation for what you're going to hear from this pulpit today. Because <laughs> this is not one of the greatest minds even of this generation or even maybe of this city. Maybe, probably not even this room. There is inevitable mystery. Inevitable mystery. C.J. Mahaney says, we should not be surprised when we encounter mystery. Mystery, that which is true yet incomprehensible. We should not be surprised when we encounter mystery with God. It is inevitable because we are finite creatures studying God. Our God far exceeds and defies human analysis. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, you might know this verse, says, the secret things belong to the Lord. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. What's this very important passage saying? It's saying you should expect and be comfortable with mystery in your understanding of God and his ways. God has revealed his word to us in such a way that we can know him and his ways truly, but not exhaustively, because finite creatures cannot fully and exhaustively understand an infinite God who's sovereign over all history and all the billions of people who have ever existed how would any of us endeavor to try to exhaustively understand that? It's an impossible task. So we have to be okay with mystery. Here's a second caution. Here's a second caution. Beware of unhelpful curiosity. Beware of unhelpful curiosity. What, what, is, what is unhelpful curiosity? Because not all curiosity is unhelpful. But l- let me say this. Cur- Unhelpful curiosity is curiosity about the things that are secret. Deuteronomy 29.29 says that, that there are things that God has revealed to us that we can understand. Major on those. But when we've, when we've hit the limit of our understanding, expressing curiosity into the realm of what we can't fully grasp and understand can at best just be distracting. John Calvin himself said, let it be our first principle to desire no other principle than that which is revealed by the word of God. That is so helpful. He continues, let us not walk where there is no path or seek light where there is only darkness. Let us not walk where there is no path. The paths have been clearly outlined in the pages of Scripture. Listen, election, predestination, they are, they are undeniably there in the pages of Scripture. But so is our responsibility in, any way, in many ways. There, there are command after command for us to follow. There is, there is even in salvation the command to, to believe, which Ephesians 2.9 says that 
is a gift itself, so we can't even take credit for the belief. But nevertheless, nevertheless, there are commands to believe in Jesus. It's this combination of, of divine, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We need to become comfortable with seeing an apparent contradiction in Scripture and know there is no actual contradiction. We need to be comfortable with that. Because we're, we're finite creatures studying an infinite God. By what he's revealed, we can know him truly, but not exhaustively. So, seek to know what is true. Seek to know what he has revealed to you. Study divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And when you hit your limit of your understanding, be okay with mystery. Our hearts should reflect the psalmist in Psalm 131, verse 1, when he says, My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. That's good instruction for us. It's a good example. So instead of curiosity, we should seek humility. Election, as it so happens, is just about the most humbling doctrine there is because it's a doctrine that says that you can't take credit for anything. Election, Reformed theology, in the grand scope, should produce humility. It's a doctrine that says, I'm an undeserved sinner. Yet God chose me. Here's the third caution. This is an important one. Our unity does not require agreement on election. In the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, there are some who favor the human responsibility side. And get this, some of them were, were some of the greatest minds in the history of the church. They were not dummies. And that's okay. This is a very important doctrine, but election is not of first importance. The gospel is of first importance, 1 Corinthians 15. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not by grace through faith in our belief in election. The doctrine of election does not divide between brother and brother. No, no. It makes a distinction between those who are elect to eternal life and those who are not yet, and we don't know who the elect are who are not yet a part of the church, which, which is the impetus for evangelism, for mission, to go out and proclaim the gospel so that sheep who are not yet of this fold might hear the voice of their Savior and come. So, heeding those cautions, here's the wonder of election. I'll put it this way. A seminary professor was, was teaching a class and, and one of their students responded to the teaching of the doctrine of election and said, this is awful. I just, I just can't believe in a God who would randomly choose some and then randomly not choose others and turn them away when they would otherwise be saved. I can't get on board with that. And the professor responded and said, Shut 
big picture all wrong. You're picturing God, a God who's standing at the gates of heaven with a huge crowd of people thronging to get in and randomly allowing some while randomly turning others away and sending them to hell. The professor said, the truth is that God stands at the gates of heaven and there's no one. We're all running in the opposite direction as fast as we can toward hell. And God reaches out, grabbed you, and he stopped you. And he grabbed you by the arm and he drew you to himself. The doctrine of sin tells us, it tells us that we were created to glorify him, but we all chose our own. We all chose to shake our fist at him and to pursue our own path. Not running toward the gates of heaven, thronging to get in, but the opposite. And yet God still chose to stop some and to draw them to himself. Listen, the real mystery of election isn't why God didn't choose everyone. It's why God chose to, to extend mercy to anyone. That's the wonder of election. It is marvelous that God would save anyone, knowing the extent of our rebellion against him. If he didn't choose us, we would not have chosen him because we were running the opposite direction. And Ephesians 2.1 says that we were dead in our sins, spiritually unable to choose him even if we wanted to. And we don't. God chose us. You are a Christian. God chose you. He stopped your headlong sprint toward hell, and he grabbed you, and he drew you. Charles Spurgeon said, I believe in the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I would never have chosen him. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me because I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. <laughs> Paul's point here, it was exclusively and entirely the result of God's sovereignty. And why? Why election? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 29, after, after Paul says, God didn't choose the, the wise. God chose, but he didn't choose the wise, the strong, the, the admirable of the world. He chose what is weak. He chose what is pitiable. He chose. Why did he choose? So that, 1 Corinthians 1, 29, so that no, no one might boast in the presence of God. So that no one might boast in the presence of God. K. Scott Oliphant says very well, he says, only by believing in the doctrine of election is it possible to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ without whispering on the side, and me too. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Me too. 
Election takes that me too out of there and says, blessing alone to our God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, how would you describe the event of your conversion, that day that, that you were saved? Is there an emphasis on your repentance and your faith and, and the decision you made? Or is the emphasis on God's initiative toward you, on a desire that He welled up within your heart, and how He graciously and mercifully drew you to Himself? Because that is what happened. That is what happened. We can claim 0% responsibility for our salvation. None. It is 100% to the praise of His glory. And that phrase, to the praise of His glory, it occurs three times in this passage. And it's, it's like a blinking neon arrow that's saying, this is what I'm talking about. This is all to the praise of His glory. But look at the verse... The, the first part of verse 6, Paul says it differently here. He says, to the praise of his glorious grace. He doesn't say to the praise of his glory generally. He also doesn't say, mind you, to the praise of his glorious wrath. Because God's, God's wrath, his justice, is glorious. But he doesn't say to the praise of his glorious wrath. He says to the praise of his glorious what? Grace. God's sovereignty and election is sovereign grace. And that leads to the second point. Second, the second reason that God is preeminently worthy of all glory is that he redeemed us. Point number two, God redeemed us. There was purpose in God's choosing of us. He didn't just randomly choose us and say, choose you, and you, and you, and you. He said, no, I choose you to do something. He did it because he wanted to. On one hand, look at, look at verse 5, according to the counsel of his will. Verses 9 and 11 say the same thing, which is essentially saying, why did he do it? Because he wanted to. Because it was his will to do that. And that in and of itself is marvelous. That God would benevolently want to choose people. But, but, on the other hand, he chose us to something. Verse 5, he predestined us. He predestined us for what? For adoption as sons. He chose us to become members of his family. But that's not all. He predestined us to be forgiven of our sins. Verse 7, forgiven, forgiven of our trespasses. How much forgiveness? Next phrase, according to the riches of his grace. As much forgiveness as he has grace for. And 1 Peter 5.10 says that he is the God of all grace. So how much forgiveness is there in him? As much grace as he has availability for, and he's the God of all grace. There are infinite storehouses of grace in God. 
And how would we be forgiven? First part of verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. We would be forgiven through redemption. Redeem is buying and selling language. We needed to be bought. God paid the price by the shedding of blood. Not by the shedding of blood, by the shedding of blood of his own son. Adopted, forgiven, redeemed. All of this was done by God. Notice how we play no role in any of these things. It doesn't say that we, we, we cooperated. We, we collaborated for forgiveness. We did a sort of co-op for redemption. He says, God did this. This is all God. Through his son, Jesus Christ. And the role that Jesus plays in what God is doing and has done cannot be overstated. I want you to just notice, Jesus has mentioned no fewer than 15 times in the first 14 verses of Ephesians. The, the phrase, in Christ or in him or in the beloved one, occurs 11 times in this passage. It is a massive emphasis. Look at this. Faithful in Christ. Blessed us in Christ. Chose us in him. Blessed us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption. Purpose set forth in Christ. In him we have an inheritance. We hope in Christ. In him you were sealed. We believed in him. This is the doctrine of the union of Christ. And it's a precious doctrine because it says that on the cross, Galatians 2.20, we were united with him. And in being united with him, we get everything that comes through him. What's the point here? Sinners are chosen solely in Christ. Not because of anything in us. God shows us for salvation, and he gets 100% of the glory, but then God actually saved us. He didn't just choose us, he then actually saved us by his son. He forgave us, redeemed us, adopted us in Christ. He gets all the glory, God's sovereign grace in the choosing and the saving. It's all God. But wait. There's more. This is not an infomercial. This is fantastic. It's way better than any infomercial. Third point here. Third reason that Paul identifies why God is supremely worthy of all glory is that God gave us everything. He gave us everything. He chose us. He redeemed us. He gave us everything. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. In him, once again, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So not only were, not only were you predestined to adoption, 
by becoming a son in a family. You were predestined for an inheritance. What, what, is, what is any son in any family entitled to, especially in ancient times? Today, today it's not as common as it was then, but if you were a son, especially a firstborn son in an ancient family, you were entitled to an inheritance. And Paul is saying, now you all, if you were chosen in Christ, you were predestined to be adopted in Christ, into that family. And as one who's been predestined to be adopted, you are predestined to receive an inheritance. What is our inheritance in Christ? You're taking notes. It's very simple. Our inheritance is every promise of God. Every promise of God. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. So for the one who belongs to Christ, the promise of God is received by you and you ask, is this promise mine? In Christ, God says, yes. Do we get that? Yes. Do we get that? Yes. Do we get a relationship with Christ himself? Yes. Peace with God in Christ? Yes. Heaven? Yes. Victory over death? Yes. Reigning? Yes. Ruling? Yes. Eternal life? Yes. Power? Yes. Hope? Yes. Love? Yes. Joy? Yes. Fellowship? Yes. Belonging? Yes. Purpose? Yes. In Christ. And that list could go on a lot, lot longer. In Christ, it's all yours. Here's the point. Our inheritance is beyond what we could have ever imagined. And we earned none of it. We earned none of it. That's why at the end of verse 12, Paul says again, <laughs> so, that, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. It's all him. He gave us everything so that he would be magnified for the sovereignly gracious God that he is. And he deserves glory. He gave us everything. That leads to the fourth and final point. Boy, oh boy. Fourth point. Fourth reason that God is supremely worthy of glory is that God sealed us with his spirit. So God chose us, God redeemed us, God gave us everything, and God sealed us with his spirit. One of the tricky things about an inheritance is that you have to wait for it, right? And so you think, or at least, at least thoughts trickle into your mind, and you go, am I really going to get it? What if it runs out? Or maybe has it run out? Or maybe, am I, am I an imposter? Do, do I not really belong in this family? Do I have no right to receive this inheritance? Even, even in a human way, 
All those, all those questions come in when you're talking about an inheritance that you are due from a, from a parent or an older relative. The period of waiting is a period of, of, of unsureness, going, oh, oh gosh, I, I hope this, this comes in full. And for Christians, that can lead to sort of trying to gain a sense of assurance, maybe by looking inwardly at my, at my works, going, well, okay, what, what, a, what fruit is there in, in my life? Or, or what, what have I done? Do, have, have I done enough to, to earn this inheritance or to, to be sure that, 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 that I have this? Hopefully, hopefully by doing more, I can get more of that inheritance, and we tend to sort of live like that. And Paul is saying here, in verses 13 and 14, that God's even done that. He has done the work to give you the, the assurance, the guarantee that you will receive that inheritance, and that you are entitled in Christ to that inheritance. Look, look at verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The, Hor- the Holy Spirit is a, is a seal of our salvation and inheritance. John MacArthur notes that sealing is something that in ancient times was a sign of ownership, a sign of security a sign of authenticity, and a sign of a completed transaction. That's what Paul is saying here when he says you were sealed, that you have a guarantee of your inheritance through the Holy Spirit. Here's what's going down. How many here remember the old school credit card imprinters? Oh yeah. Yep, just that motion alone. Uh, confirms to some of you who are going, credit card imprinter, oh yeah, I know that. If you're going, what What are you talking about, man? A credit card imprinter was a device that was used to give a receipt for a credit card transaction. You would put the credit card down on the imprinter and then place a, a carbon sheet of paper over the top of that that had details of the transaction and a signature line for you to sign after this, this happened and then would run this bar over that carbon paper and the, the credit card. You ever wonder, if you're younger than 20 years old, you ever wonder why credit cards have raised letters and numbers? Because of that. It's a holdover from, from those machines, this non-electronic mechanical machine, because when you ran that bar over, it would imprint those raised letters and numbers on that sheet. But here's the thing about credit cards. They're promises of payment, right? So it makes them different than debit cards. They're saying, hey, I don't necessarily have this money right now, but I'm going to promise I'm going to pay you. That's why those imprinters were important, because the signed and imprinted receipt said, I promise to pay what I've said I'll pay. And God is looking at you, Christian, and saying, I promise to give you the fullness of the inheritance that you were due in Christ. And the Holy Spirit is like that imprinted piece of paper which has the imprint of Christ himself. And he says here, I 
give you my Holy Spirit. And I'm just giving to you. He's going to dwell within your heart until that day when Jesus Christ returns. As a guarantee, son. As a guarantee, daughter, that every promise that I have made to you and my son Jesus Christ, you will receive. 1 Peter 1.4 says that you were born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, being kept in heaven for you. Your inheritance is going nowhere. And Jesus is keeping it safe for you. And the Holy Spirit is your guarantee until you acquire full possession of it. How appropriately does this passage end on to the praise of his glory. And that's what this has been all about, hasn't it? This whole passage, it's about those words at the very end, to the praise of his glorious grace that he would do this for poor, pitiable sinners who rejected him, who have no reason in themselves to be chosen, but that God chose according to the counsel of his will because he wanted to. Deuteronomy 6 says of Israel, he says, I didn't choose you because you were more lovely or more numerous than any other people. He says, I chose you because I love you. And he looks at you and he says the same thing. He says, you ask me why I chose you? I chose you because I love you. In my son, I love you. He's done it all. Marvel at it. With that, let me, let me recommend three ways to respond. Three, three things that God's sovereign grace toward you should produce in you. I'll be brief here. Three things that God's sovereign grace toward you should produce in you. The first of these, and if we miss this, we've missed the whole passage. The first of these is praise. We should be affected by it. We should be moved by God's sovereign grace. Ephesians 2.8, we'll get there in a few weeks, says, by grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. If God hadn't, you wouldn't. But God did. And he did it all. Praise God for it. That's Paul's entire aim here. And take Paul's cue for what it would look like to praise him. Paul couldn't even pause to write a period he was so eager to praise God. Take his cue there. You say, what does it mean? What would it mean to praise God for it? Look at Paul. Fill yourself with the truth of what he has done for you such that it just starts coming out of you. Without restraint. Let your marveling at him and his works just come out of you. And listen, it should come out of you. It shouldn't be restrained and pent up within us. Our neighbors should hear about it. Your brothers and sisters in this church should hear about it from you. We easily forget how marvelous God and his works are. It serves one another when we praise God in the midst of the congregation. 
let it come out of you in your conversations with others. Let it come out of you when you sing. When you sing on Sunday mornings, and this is already a church who sings loud and, and eagerly. I love singing with, with you all. But sing louder. <laughs> Praise God full-throatedly for what he has done in Christ. Oh, how often do you find yourself just conversing with God in prayer and thanking him? Praising him for what he has done in you. Let your marveling come out of you. Second thing it should produce in you. Second thing, belief. Belief. We don't just sit back and admire God's sovereign grace from a distance. Nearly every single verb in this entire passage relates to God. It's about talking about what God has done. But there, there are two verbs in particular where, where we're the actor. And, and you can miss them very easily. Look at verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, you who are the first to hope in Christ. And verse 13, and when you heard, past tense, heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in God's sovereign grace is not intended to be admired at a distance. This is, this is true for, for the person who is a Christian. It's necessary to continually refresh yourself in this and remind yourself of what it is that you have put all, all your stock into. Remind yourself, oh yeah, this is worth giving my whole life. Oh yeah, this, this is the grand purpose of my life. Oh yeah, this is the one who I belong to. And he is so good. But if you're not a Christian this morning, and you do find yourself marveling that, that a God could really be this gracious, the call to you is to believe. The call to you is to believe. And yes, faith is a gift from God. You don't have to sit there and go, gosh, has, has God given me the gift of faith? Will he give me the gift of faith? No, the call is believe. And if you have believed, then you can be assured he's given you the gift of faith and he's chosen you. If you find this picture of God marvelous, then you can be one who he has chosen for adoption and redemption and forgiveness. You can experience that adoption and redemption and forgiveness. You can receive the full inheritance that's promised in Christ. And you can receive the, the seal of his, his Holy Spirit by believing in Jesus this morning. If that's you, and I'm being so serious here, come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to tell you about what that would mean in your life. Or talk to the person you came with this morning. The most important decision you could ever make. Finally, the last thing that it should do in us, the last thing it should produce in us, is humility. So praise, belief, and humility. Election should humble you. should humble us. Adoption should humble you. Redemption should humble you. Your inheritance should humble you. Because it's all by sovereign grace. Have you ever looked on, on LinkedIn and seen somebody who receives an award and say, I'm so humbled to receive this award. 
when you're also looking at that post and going, you know you, you earned that award, and you're telling everybody you earned that award. So are you really humbled by it? In this case, we didn't earn anything. And when we say, I am humbled that God would choose me, that should be a genuine expression of humility because we did nothing to do it. We did nothing to contribute to it. Absolutely nothing. So listen, if you hold to Reformed theology, but you have a tendency to hold them arrogantly, or, or you're, you're on discussion forums and, and talking about these things crassly, you've grossly misunderstood Reformed theology. If, if you mock those who disagree with you, you are a contradiction. Because your theology claims to be unable to take credit for any truth that you've ever learned. So you would have no reason to mock anybody for anything they've believed. You have only what you have received with empty hands. Humility should be evident in your life. And where is it not evident in your life? Ask yourself that. In, in your words toward others, even in, in your tone. How about the way you think about others? Especially other Christians who, who disagree with you. How do you think about them? How we should think about them charitably. And, and if we think they're in error, oh, we should extend compassion. We should be praying for them. We should extend the, the, the hand of, of friendship and, and help. What do you think of non-Christians? Do you think of, of them arrogantly as though they're those who just haven't gotten it yet? Gosh, Jesus is right in front, right in front of them, but they haven't chosen him yet. Poor fools. But he looked at them and say, Lord, use me to extend the message of the gospel to them so that you would call them into your family, call them to adoption sons and daughters. What a privilege that I would be used as, as an instrument for that end. Friends, the church, the church is marvelous. And we will see that in the coming weeks. But it's only marvelous because of God's sovereign grace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for who you are. We've not deserved anything. We've not earned anything. We've not done anything that would merit your favor. You've done it, and you've done it all. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live lives of praise. Would you help us to be humble? And would you give us the faith to believe in who you are and what your son has done. It's in his name we pray.